following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. He threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be like God to him. And take your staff, and take in your hand this staff, with which you will do the signs. And Moses went back to Jethro his father-in-law and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Um, how many of you really enjoy being unemployed? Of course not. Uh, and one of the things about when you're unemployed is you need to, you know, you need to be applying for a job, which is always kind of a challenging process. And I don't know if you've had many opportunities to do that, but um, it kind of works like this. The employer is looking for um, like the ideal perfect candidate that just doesn't live. Like Jesus really couldn't fulfill, you know, what people are looking for usually as a job, right? And when somebody super smart, super ambitious, super friendly, super personable, and willing to work for nothing. <laughs> uh, flip side, when you know, so that's what they're looking for. So you read what you're supposed to be, and of course you go in and you try to come up with a list, try to express how you are the complete fulfillment of all they're looking for, which of course requires, if not lying, at least exaggerating on your part, right? Well, um, so kind of the way the system works is it guarantees that everyone ends up being thoroughly disappointed uh, if they hire you, right? Well, uh, this morning I'd like to just look, as we look at Exodus, you know, what, what would it look like if we actually had to apply for a job with God? All right? Imagine if, uh, you know, you just apply to your mission organization or to ministry or to service, but you had to actually apply to God. What would that look like? Well, thankfully... God's not going to have too high of expectations because he knows us, right? He knows we're human. He's not asking for the impossible. But God does want us to work for him, to serve him. So who, who is the person that God can use? What, what is God looking for in those people who he would call and put to work? 
Do you measure up? Are you that kind of person? Right? Maybe you're here this morning you're thinking, well, I don't think I measure up. Maybe I don't know that I'm the kind of person who God can use. Well, let's uh, look through this. And, and this is kind of where we find Moses, actually. Um, he, he might feel like he's in a, a job interview. Only this, in this case, he's not actually trying to get the job. As it turns out, he's trying to not get the job, right? So as God's interviewing him, that's actually the way around. Moses is interviewing God. And he's trying to explain all the reasons why he's not a good candidate. Um, so let's look at these things. What are some of the characteristics of the person whom God can use, whom God wants to use? Well, the first characteristic, I believe, is that it's a person who is desperately dependent on God. Right, so let's kind of look at the passage and see where I get that from. Uh, beginning of the story, and this is actually kind of the middle. We've been at the, parked at the burning bush now for three Sundays. First couple of Sundays, we kind of introduced it and talked about the first couple of questions that Moses brings up. First one was, who am I? I'm, I'm nobody. Second one was basically, God, who are you? Why would people, you know, what kind of reputation do you have in Egypt that, that they would listen to you even though you're God? Uh, then he comes to the third question, uh, and it's a legitimate question. Uh, Point. And, and Moses says essentially, look, I can't convince them that I've, that I've been with you. Uh, it says, Moses answered, but behold, they won't believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, God did not appear to you. Yahweh did not appear to you. And honestly, Moses brings up a good point here. Um, it's like, God, okay, so God, let me get this straight. You want me to go to the leaders of Israel and to Pharaoh and say, hey, I was out herding sheep one day. And this burning bush started talking to me. And so I had this conversation with this burning bush that told me to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let the people go. Yeah, sure, they'll believe that, right? Um, they'll think I'm crazy, right? Uh, why would they believe me? And to make matters worse, of course, Moses didn't leave Egypt in the best of circumstances, right? He had been uh, a wanted criminal for murder, uh, he was under the death sentence by the Pharaoh at that time. Um, and on top of that, his own people, the Israelites, if you remember right, they were real impressed with his efforts. And they, they said, who, who are you? Right? Even when he was a prince of Egypt, the Israelites didn't respect him. So, so Moses brings up a valid concern here. How am I going to convince them that I've really met with you? Right? Why would they believe me? Um, do you ever feel like Moses sometimes? Do you ever feel like God has given you a, a task and it's like, God, how are people going to believe or know that you sent me? Take, take the basic and simple task that all of us have of, of proclaiming Christ to lost people, right? Why would lost people believe our message? You know, there's this God, he sent Jesus. Jesus lived this life, perfect life on earth, never sinned, never failed, um, and, and so they killed him, and after three days he rose again, and he now reigns on high, and he can forgive you if you will just trust him. Right? Uh, it sounds unbelievable to me, and I believe it. Right? Why would non-Christians accept this message? Uh, we live in a day where increasingly, uh, especially the Western world, is saying the Bible can't be true because science proves it otherwise. Right? In fact, a survey just came out. I didn't look up this, the actual numbers. But not only is this true in the world, where the world is saying 
you know, the science proves the Bible wrong at so many points, but more and more in, increasingly evangelical Christians, people who claim to be evangelical Christians, are saying, yeah, I think that's right. right? The science argues against the Bible. The Bible, you know, maybe it has spiritual truth, but it's not valid in a scientific world. How do we convince people? Uh, sharing the gospel with people in Asia, with people with a Buddhist background, right? How do we convince them when their worldview is so far from uh, the understanding of Scripture? Um, and it goes on down the list. As we minister, as we counsel with people, as we work with people, a great deal of it depends on our ability to convince them. When I was counseling, which was a lot of depressed people, and, you know, I, I, would, I would just labor to convince them, you know, God loves you. And most of them just, I couldn't convince them, right? So maybe you feel that way in your work or what you're doing. I can't do this. They won't believe me. And that's exactly what Moses felt. Um, so what is God's answer to that? He says, Moses, that's not your problem. I am the one who's able to convince them. And uh, looking last week, if you were here, you know, God gives his name, the great I am. And in this answer, he says, I am the one who will convince them. You don't have to do that. And he gives uh, Moses three miraculous signs we're all pretty familiar with. Um, he says, I'm going to give you some signs. I'm going to give you power. And, and believe me, when I'm done, they're going to be convinced. So he says to Moses, what's that in your hand? And Moses is carrying a staff. Uh, in, 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 in ancient times, every per, probably every male carried a walking stick. It was just standard gear. And you look throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, you see guys with their sticks and their staffs and their rods, kind of all interchangeable words for the same thing. And they were quite personalized. Uh, something you carried with you perhaps your whole life. Perhaps you carved your initials in it or... You know, instead of getting tattooed, you, you tattoo the stick, right? You, you personalize it. You, you, it's an identifying mark of who you are, in many ways kind of an extension of who you are. I'm kind of sad I don't live in this day because I think it would be just really cool. It would be very Gandalfish, you know, very wizardly. Like, have a staff. I thought, I thought, I was tempted to just start carrying one around. It's kind of be, this would be kind of cool. Um, uh, and so, so, so God says that, Moses, what's in your hands? It's my staff, right? It's just throw it on the ground. So, of course, Moses throws it on the ground, and it instantly turns into a snake. And I love, it says, and Moses ran away from it. <laughs> well, duh. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Right? I mean, uh, think about it. Uh, you know, we can get this idea that people in the Old Testament, because they lived in the Bible, and it's kind of enchanted and magical, that they're used to this stuff happening all the time. But it's not true. I mean, Moses didn't encounter the supernatural really ever in his life until this day. Imagine God says to you, what's that in your hand? And you say, well, it's my cell phone, right? It's the most personalized thing I have that I carry with me everywhere. He says, throw it on the ground. You say, no, it'll break. He says, throw it on the ground. <laughs> throw it on the ground and it turns into a tarantula, right? Um, wouldn't that just freak you out? Right? Would you run? I would run. Um, so <laughs> Moses gets at a safe distance. And, and I'm thinking, now, I want this power. I want this because I'm thinking this would be the perfect cue when you're standing in line like at the grocery store. So, man, I can think of great uses for this. I want to get to the front, just throw down the stick. Boom. Clears out the line, pick up the stick, go to the front. <laughs> I love this. Um, 
God says, pick it up. He picks it up by the tail. Great act of faith, really. Turns back into a stick, right? And God says, this is so that they may believe. I'm giving you ammo. I'm giving you something here, a tool that's going to be convincing. And I, I, I tend to agree with that. Before Moses has a chance to argue or anything, God says, okay, here's sign number two. I want you to take your hand and put it to your chest or, or in your cloak. It can be translated either way. Uh, Moses does that, and instantly his hand becomes leprous, turns white as snow. Um, and, of course, in that time, it was a very serious skin disease that everybody was very fearful of. Uh, if your hand had evidence, it meant just a matter of very little time, and it would spread over your whole body. And here, Moses just put his on his chest next to his heart, right? Um, and uh, it's something that would strike fear because it would spread not only to the person, but beyond to neighbors and friends, right? You were unclean. Uh, it was a terrible disease. Instantly, uh, his hand is white as snow. And God says, okay, put it back in your cloak. He puts it back again, and instantly it is healed. Um, in ancient times, sickness and disease wasn't really identified with germs like it is in our day. They didn't have this understanding that the, the disease is the result of chemicals and cells and you know, stuff like that. They believed that ultimately sickness and disease was something that the gods inflicted on you because you had ticked them off. You had done something to anger God and they inflict you with sickness. And, and therefore only, only the God or the gods could heal you. So they didn't go to a doctor. They, when they got sick, they went to the temple. Right? They made sacrifices. And you see that actually practiced still in Asia. Same kind of thinking, right? It's ultimately a spiritual thing, and I have to appease, I have to sacrifice to the gods so that they will remove this bad luck, this bad karma, this disease. Right? So there's a very strong sense that God alone has the power to heal. So... Uh, at will, Moses now has the power to inflict himself with a disease and, and instantly see healing. What a powerful sign that God was with him. Finally, he said, look, if those don't work, if, if, if the first one doesn't, if they don't believe you after the first one, or they don't believe you after the second one, it was interesting that God would say this because apparently God's almost as skeptical about this as Moses is, right? I'm thinking the stick turned into the snake would do it. It would do it for me. But God knows how stubborn and hard-hearted people are. And so he says, I'm giving you three. And as we know later, this is just the beginning, right? There's much more to come. Uh, but this is as far as he gives Moses on that. He says, if those signs don't work, take a cup of water out of the Nile, pour it on dry ground, and it will become blood. Uh, and of course, we don't know if Moses did this with the uh, elders, with the leaders of Israel, but we do know that this was his first plague, his first miracle, first sign to Pharaoh uh, as he turns the, the Nile into blood. Uh, and this, was an, uh, this is a significant one because uh, in Egypt they worshipped the Nile as the source of all life. Uh, it was, it was, and it really was for them the source of life. Uh, without the Nile River, Egypt would be nothing but a huge barren desert that could not sustain life. Uh, they, they literally lived by the Nile River, uh, and it supported all life. Uh, what's interesting about this miracle, so it's a, it's a miracle about water, which is, is the source of life. It's also interesting that it's a miracle about blood, which is also pictured for us as an image of life, right? 
uh, we, we, we use the expression, it's your life's blood, meaning you know, we're pretty dependent on the blood that circulates in us uh, for life. But, but this miracle takes water and blood and it turns them both upside down. Uh, by turning the river into blood, it is no longer life-supporting. It is actually death, right? Because you can't, it loses all its life-giving properties. And likewise, when blood is outside the body, when it's poured out on the ground, it is not a sign of life. It is a sign of death, right? So it was a, a, a symbol packed with meaning. Um, and again, something only God could do. Uh, and all these things point to what? Well, it points to what God will do to convince not only the, the, the leaders of Israel, but all of Israel and Pharaoh and in, in time all of Egypt. God says, look, I am the one who will convince them. I'm not asking you to convince them. I'm just asking you to go. Um, and it's a good reminder for us. As we go out and we proclaim the gospel, we, we teach the word, we counsel with people, we encourage them. They need convincing. But it is not your job or mine to convince them. Right? We are just witnesses. It is ultimately God's job to convince them. And we would like to say, you know, God, if you gave me a stick that I could turn into a snake... I'd be all over this. I'll be an evangelist. I'll go out and do this, right? Uh, why doesn't God give us those kind of signs? Why doesn't God give us the power to heal? You know, Jesus raised people from the dead. If I could go into a village and raise people from the dead, I'm thinking I would have an audience. Surely that would be convincing. But Jesus himself is a good illustration that even raising people from the dead was not enough to convince the Jewish leaders. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, what was their response? To believe or to want to kill Jesus? They wanted to kill him, didn't they? Right? They weren't convinced by even that miracle. And the reality is that we have something better than even raising the dead. God has given us the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reality is that ultimately it's only the Holy Spirit that can, can convince people. But it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to open the spiritual eyes of the blind, to give them ears to hear and a heart to understand and believe. Ultimately, faith itself is a gift that comes from the Holy Spirit. So as we go out to preach and teach and evangelize and encourage, uh, the Holy Spirit will go with us to convince. And that's what we need to put our trust in, right? Um, and so that's why we need to be, what, desperately dependent, right? God, I can go, but I can't convince. Only you can. So we depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. Uh, second objection of Moses fits under the same category, the same thing of, de of desperate dependence. So God answers that. He says, you don't have to convince them. I will. And I'll do it in a big way. Not just the leaders of Israel, but all of Egypt, even hard-hearted Pharaoh will be convinced when I'm done with him. Um, but that's not enough for Moses, right? Moses' next interview question. Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, 
I am slow of speech and tongue. Uh, basically, Moses' complaint here is, look, I don't have what it takes. I just don't have the talents or the skill set that you're looking for. And, and Moses is thinking this, he's thinking, you know, this is going to take somebody with really impressive communication skills. Somebody who, who's good with PowerPoint, right? Or can make like impressive brochures, right? I don't have those skills. I'm not a good communicator. You're going to have to present a clear logical argument to persuade Pharaoh. You're going to have to articulate well exactly what you're asking and requiring. Because I, I can't do that. Uh, literally, he says his lips are heavy and his tongue is heavy, slow. It's, he says, I'm not, I'm not eloquent. I'm not good at speaking. Um, interestingly, um, and, he, and he goes on to say, I've, ne- I've never had that skill said. And he's a little pushing the envelope here with God. He's going, not only have I never had it, but talking to you hasn't changed things, right? Usually you talk to me, since you started talking to me, I'm still pretty awkward in speech. Um, some people feel that, you know, maybe he had some kind of um, speech impediment. I don't know, you know, was this really fact or fiction? The reality is that, in, as it turns out, uh, Moses proved to be quite eloquent and quite able to communicate. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. I'm thinking he can communicate okay, right? Um, Aaron, you know, we see later Aaron comes to help. But in the end, Moses does most of the speaking, right? I think this was a perceived weakness uh, for Moses that may have not been all that true, right? But, but the, the point is, no matter how much he was or wasn't gifted in this, he felt it as an inadequacy. And I think we can identify with this one as well. Uh, in what God is calling you to do and the ministries you're involved in, uh, do you feel inadequate? Right? M- my guess is that probably most of us feel inadequate. If you feel overly qualified, um, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> you may be missing something. Um, God loves to call us to areas where we feel the most weak. Why? So we'll depend on him. Right? So we will be desperately dependent on him and not doing it in our own strength. Um, I can relate. Like, you know, maybe Moses felt this way because he had failed speech class in high school. Right? Uh, my, my true confessions here, like me, uh, you know what my worst class was in Bible college? The worst grade I got in all of Bible college was what? Preaching. Preaching. Right? Not only was it my worst grade in, in college, I was the second out of 20 students, I was the second to the worst in the whole class. Right? So, so, yeah, I wasn't real confident as a public speaker, especially after that class. Um, you know, what is it God's calling you to that you feel you do not have the skills or abilities? You feel inadequate. You feel like, Moses, God, you're asking the wrong person. You know, you need to widen your, your job search, right? Because there's people out there better qualified for this than me. Why are you asking me to do this? That's exactly what Moses is saying. Um, so what is God's answer? Again, it's another I am statement. God says simply this, I am, I am what it takes. You don't have what it takes. I know that. I'm what it takes. I am all that you need. 
Verse 11, the Lord said to him, Who has made a man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, you might be surprised about this, Moses, but I know exactly what your skills are. I know things about you you don't even know. Right? I know, I know, I, I, I made you. Right? And I made you for a certain and specific purpose. And when, before the world was created, I had a design in place for, your, for you that would line up and match what I'm calling you to. Right? So I know what you can do. But that doesn't mean that I have made it so that you don't need me. Right? I didn't create you in such a way that you're so eloquent and so good at this that you can do this without my help. That's not the point. Rather, he says, I will be your ability. I will be all that you need. Right? He says, I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what to speak. Right? I am your required skill set. Whatever you may feel your adequacies or inadequacies are, in the end, you don't need eloquence. All you need is me. Back to those people who feel overly qualified or feel that, yeah, God, God chose well when he chose me. Uh, there is danger in feeling qualified for the job we're in. Right? Uh, really, what God is looking for is people who, who are convinced they can't do it. If you feel like you can do it, uh, my guess is God's called you to something besides that. Right? Because it's just not how God works. When we walk in our strength and by our wisdom and follow our own plan, it's doomed to failure. And Moses had been there. Moses had done this, right, 40 years before. I've got a plan to rescue Israel out of Egypt. And it failed miserably. That's why God almost always calls us to things that we are certain are impossible. So if you're standing facing a task and you know God's called you to something, you go, God, this is impossible. You're in a good spot, right? You're probably right exactly where God has called you because you will depend on him and not on yourself. Okay, so that's the first thing. God's looking for people. He wants to use people who are desperately dependent on him who know they don't have what it takes. They need, in, in a significant way, they need God's help and power. Second thing, though, is um, God uses people who he calls, people who are, who are called by God. So, so, so basically at this point in the, in the interview, God is done answering questions. And Moses has laid out all these reasons why he can't do it, and God has answered them every time I know you can't do it. That's why I'm going with you. I know you can't do it. That's why I am enough. I know you can't do it. That's why I'm going to convince them. I know you can't do it. That's why I'm going to put the words in your mouth. Okay, all you need is me. Right? Um, and so God says, now then, go. Go, right? Enough, enough discussion, enough talk, right? It's time for you to go to Egypt and do what I've called you to do. Uh, we talked last week, God, God first calls Moses to himself, and at the burning bush there's a very real sense in which God calls Moses to him. But then he sends him, and, and in this verse, uh, God sends Moses out. He says, you need to go, right? Um, and I will go with you. Um, and the point here is that 
um, God gets to decide. God is the one who gets to make plans. God is the one who calls people. Um, there's a sense in which we, we do have a choice and we do volunteer, but it's not like this. It's not like we go to God and say, hey God, I went to this cool conference, I went to the seminar, and I got these five steps that's going to save Thailand, and so God, here's what we're going to do, because I have a plan, right? right? We, don't get, we don't get that privilege. Right? It does not work that way. God is in charge, and he sovereignly calls and directs and uses and moves people according to his will and his purpose. Um, we do not get to pick our spiritual gifts. Right? Um, if, you know, and if, if you did, what, what, would, what, what would you pick if you had... The, like, for me, I'd go for healing. Like I said, I want, that, I want that sign gift. I want to be able to raise people from the dead. God, sign me up for that one. Because right? it sounds cool. Um, didn't give me that one, right? Paul says we can desire certain gifts, so he tells the Corinthians they should desire prophecy over tongues. But in the end, Paul is clear, the Spirit assigns the gifts according to his will and purpose. Right? So you don't get to pick. You don't get to decide if you're going to be a teacher or an evangelist or a servant. Right? You don't get to pick where or how you serve. And this is hard for us, especially in the West where we're, our lives are ruled by democracy and we like and value this thing that I'm my own person and I can do whatever I want. Right? Okay, that's really horrible theology. God is the, is the Lord of the harvest who sends forth labors into his field. Um, and we've got to be very careful as we recruit people and workers for ministry. Because right? we don't mobilize people really. Right? We, we may make mechanisms for them to come and to work, but it's not our job to mobilize anybody or to send people out. It's God's job. God is the one who calls. God called Moses, and Moses, as we'll see in a moment, didn't even want to go. didn't matter. Moses didn't feel gifted or qualified. didn't matter. God was the one who called him. And the reality is that if you are a believer in Christ, if you're saved by grace, every person is called to something. You're given a gift and you're given a ministry. You're called to serve in some capacity. But it's not your choice. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 puts it this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love this. God, before you were born, before he created the world, God prepared the work for you. And it's a good work. It's a work that's going to contribute to his kingdom. It's a, it's a work that he's created you for. He's gifted you for. He's poured out his spirit to enable you to do. Um, but he gets to pick. He gets to pick. So what that means is, uh, we need to be uh, far more concerned about listening than in, in creating strategy. Right? And I'm not saying strategy is bad. I'm not saying we can't plan or have goals um, or have a vision. But what's far more important than any of that is that we are taking time to hear God speak to us, his goal, 
his vision, his plan for our life. God wants people who are listening to him, um, who are waiting on him. Uh, I think it's interesting how many people hear God's call when everything in their life is going wrong, right? Their ministry is failing, their life is failing, they're in financial difficulty, they're in conflict with everybody. And magically, oh, I'm feeling God calling me to a different, a different country, a different ministry. Right? Really, really. I'm not so sure that's always how it works. Sometimes, last thing about the call is call does require a response. A response. It is a choice. God says to Moses, now go. But it's Moses' choice, Moses' decision, if he's going to go or not. Um, it's, it's a choice that requires, yes, I will follow and obey, or no, I won't. Um, so it brings us to our next major point. Um, to that, Moses says, what? Oh, Lord, please send somebody else. Right? In other words, uh, before his concerns were, God, I, I can't do this. The last time, number five, he says, God, I won't do this. I won't do this. I'm not interested. And he, he's very polite about it, right? He puts it in very carefully worded, you know, thank you so much for thinking of me. I'm flattered, but uh, no, no, I'm not going to do this, right? I'm just going to hang out here with my sheep. I'm good, right? Moses goes from I'm not qualified to saying I'm not available. Send somebody else. And he refuses God's call at this point. He refuses God's call in his life. And at this, the, the mood of Yahweh changes. And it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Now, I don't know how Moses knew the anger was kindled, but he's standing next to a burning bush. And I'm thinking we're already standing next to a burning bush. Anything that's increasing the size of the fire could be dangerous. Right? Literally in the Hebrew, the expression is, God's anger burned. Right? So I don't know if it means like the bush just got bigger flames, got a lot hotter. Moses kind of stumbles back a few steps as his beard gets singed. Right? Um, Moses knew, however it was communicated, that God was angry. And throughout the Old Testament, God's anger was never a good thing. In fact, typically in the Old Testament and also even in the New Testament, God's anger resulted in people dying, right? Uh, Aaron's two sons got swallowed up by fire in the temple because they offered the wrong kind of sacrifice. And God's anger burned and literally consumed them in a fire, right? Uh, God's anger could cause the ground to split open and swallow people whole. It was not good to make God angry. And Moses has angered God. And it's important to see uh, briefly what is at the root of God's anger. Uh, is God just, you know, trivial here? He doesn't like to be told no. Um, is he kind of like the Godfather? You know, I'm going to make you an offer. You can't refuse. Right? You refuse, you die, right? Is he like that? Is he petty? Is he childish? Like a child, a spoiled child who throws a temper tantrum when he doesn't get his way? Well, no. Here's, here's why God is angry. The cries, we, we've heard this, the cries of his people have been coming up to him. 
Right? The Israelites have been crying out under their suffering in Egypt. And it says that God sees and he hears and he understands. He knows about their suffering. He is tuned into what is going on with them. And because of his great love, because he is moved with compassion, he wants to alleviate their suffering and fulfill his blessing for the Israelites. And so God is angry both at those who actively cause suffering and he is angry about those who passively stand by and do nothing when they can. Which is exactly what Moses is saying here. God says, I'm equipping you. I am sending you out. I am putting you in a position where you can do something about it. And Moses says, no, thank you. Of course God gets angry. Right? When those who, who could do something passively stand by and do nothing. Uh, FCF, you know, the, our foundation, the, the church um, is over. Uh, we have a lot of uh, projects that work with teen moms and, and, and teen girls. And just recently I was uh, made aware of a case where in one of our projects a 15-year-old girl came into a home because she's pregnant as a result of rape. 15 years old. Uh, so they're helping her. And, uh, you know, there's a part of me that just is so angry that, uh, that someone would take advantage of it. Was, it was a family member. It, it should make you angry, right? That kind of thing should make us angry that girls get treated this way. But here's what's even worse. Uh, it's a 15-year-old. She's pregnant, okay? So we know how this happens, right? This thing rocket science to figure out that there was a guy involved and she's a minor. She's underage, Right? It's criminal in Thailand. Uh, all we have to do is do a DNA test and we can prove conclusively who the father is. The police don't want to know. Right? The police do not care. They will not press charges. Right? It makes me so angry. Right? I just want to go hurt somebody. Right? Well, that's, that's God. That's God here. He's angry because he wants to relieve the suffering of his people and Moses does not care. And it speaks a lot to us about uh, our heart towards the things that God cares deeply about. Right? Do we passively stand by and do nothing uh, at the suffering and hurt and lostness that we see around us? But what's amazing here in this case is that God's anger does not consume Moses. Right? Instead, we find here God responding to Moses' rebellion and refusal with grace. He says, I am, in response to your stubbornness, I am the God of grace. Instead, he, instead of sending fire to consume, Yahweh sends a friend to help. He sends his brother, Aaron, to come alongside him, to be somebody who will walk with him so he doesn't have to do this alone. And Moses experiences grace. He deserved judgment, but instead God was kind to him. And of course, this is Moses' first real encounter with God. Uh, as we go through the book of Exodus and on through the Pentateuch, there's a lot that God teaches Moses about grace. And ultimately, uh, Moses will learn that God's wrath can be satisfied, but it takes a sacrifice. Right? It, takes, it takes the spilled blood of an animal in order to appease God's wrath. Um, because God's wrath is real and it can be turned away and there is forgiveness, but it costs something. Um, and it's a blood sacrifice. 
It takes a, an offering of propitiation. Really big word. Uh, I'm sure you guys all have that, you know, that, that T-shirt that was going around, propitiation. Because no. No, there was no T-shirt, right? Who would do that, right? It's a big, confusing word. What does it mean? Well, propitiation is the satisfaction of the righteous demands of God in relation to human sin and its punishment through the death of Christ. By, the, by, by which the penalty of sin is canceled and the anger of God is turned away. Okay, propitiation. By the way, in the evangelical church, all of a sudden, this has become a bad word, right? It's too bad because it's a Bible word. God is angry over sin and he needs to be appeased. Right? It needs to be turned away. It needs to be satisfied because he's a just God. So Romans 3, 23-25 says this, All have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That Jesus' blood becomes the thing that turns away God's wrath from us and from Moses. Right? And this is to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Right? So he could pass over Moses' sin at the burning bush because one day Jesus would die and would be the propitiation. And he would turn away God's wrath towards Moses. So uh, even Moses experienced God's grace through Jesus. And how much more do we experience God's grace through Jesus? And so... The point of all this is simply this, that God, the, the people that God can use are people who have experienced grace, right? Who know that they have angered God, right? And, and know that they have disappointed him. We have grieved the Holy Spirit, but we know also that God uh, has, has appeased his wrath through the blood of Jesus. And we live by grace. Lastly, God is looking for people. God can use people who are surrendered to him. Um, back up just a little bit in the story. Um, in the, the first sign, Moses, uh, God asked Moses, what's that in your hand? Right, what does Moses say? A staff, right? A staff. God says, throw it down. Uh, it's very interesting. At the very end of the passage in verse 17, the staff comes up again, and it says this in verse 17. God tells Moses, Take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. Right? After all this other stuff, it comes back to the stick, the walking stick. What's the big deal? What's its significance? Well, I think it's simply this. The staff was that which was in, in Moses' hand. In other words, it was what was in Moses' power to control. It was his, right? It probably had his name, you know, engraved on it. Had some pictures or some symbols or some things that were very personal to him. Uh, it was something that had probably been with him for at least 40 years or more. It was something he used as a tool and to fight off wild beasts as he was shepherding and maybe as a tent pole at night when he sleeps. I mean, this was something near and dear to him which he had complete power and control over. And it's a great picture of, of our life, right? All the things in our life that we have power over, that we have control over. 
In order for it to become filled with God's power, Moses had to throw it down. He had to let go of it. He had to give up control over the, the rod, and it had to stop being his and start being God's. But it's very interesting, later on, we'll see this next week, uh, Moses actually calls it the rod of God, the staff of God. Right? That's what surrender is. Right? It's giving control over those things that we feel we have a right to control, to wield for our own benefit and gain, and give them over to God. To take all those things that we call mine and that we want control over and to lay them at God's feet for him to pick up and fill with his power. And, and here's, the, here's the thing. You know, I, I would say that probably all of us want more of God's power in our life. Do you want more of God's power? I want more of God's power. I don't want to stumble through life in weakness and faltering. I, I do that well. I don't need God's help with that, right? I want God's power to do great things for his kingdom. And, and this is the principle. You cannot be filled with God's power until you lay everything down and surrender to him. You cannot have both control of your life to run your time and manage your schedules and your affairs and set your own goals and have God's power. Right? It, didn't, it didn't become a powerful tool of God until Moses let go of it. Right? And that's how it is with our life. Our life will be filled with his power when we let go of control and we say, God, it's not my life to govern anymore. It's yours. It's, it's your life to use as you choose and you please, as you call, as you direct, as you gift, as you move. Right? Um, and this is something we have to do daily. Right? Maybe you did this 20 years ago um, and you meant it. It's great. This is something you have to do daily because daily, right, we can pick up control again. We can take back over. So Paul says in Romans 12, when I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by his grace, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Um, so who can God use? Well, God uses people who, uh, by faith walk in grace, right, who know and have experienced God's redeeming work of grace. God uses people who know they can't do anything without his help. God uses people who listen to get their orders from God, not charging ahead with their own plans. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, God uses people who are daily surrendered, who are laying down their life and everything they have control and power over and letting God take those things. Not so he can strip them away from us, but so that he can fill them with his power and use them for his purpose and plan. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.